This morning, I'd like for you to open your Bibles to the book of James. I wanted to start by looking at a passage that we've already looked at from the book of James as sort of a launch point into what we're going to talk about this morning. James chapter 1, we're going to just read verses 21 to 25. James chapter 1, familiar words. James says this, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was, but, verse 25, one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. I wanted it for our time this morning, I wanted it to be connected to what we've been learning in the book of James, and this passage stood out to me. Of course, this is a passage that's convicting because it reminds us to not just be professional hearers. Sometimes we can become professional sermon hearers, even professional sermon critics at times. This passage reminds us that we need to not just listen but receive with a submissive heart that which the Lord has for us in his word, and then put that truth into action. And as I was thinking about this text and even thinking about what it is that we focus on here at Grace Community Church, what it is that we focus on here in Cornerstone, one of the questions that I was thinking about, and it's a very rudimentary, very basic question, But it was the question of why do we spend so much time when we gather together as believers, why do we spend so much time focused on listening to the teaching of the Word of God? Why why does our worship service even center around the sermon? Why do we take so much of our time in Cornerstone, so much of our time in Second Service? Why is it focused on the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God? Well, in some ways, that is an easy question to answer, but it's also a good question for us to reflect on, because sometimes we can get so caught up in the routine of doing what we do week after week that we just sort of take things for granted. But why is it that the Word of God is so central in our worship service, so central in what we do on Sundays? Well, I want to answer that question for us this morning, and and looking at this passage from James serves as a launch point. I appreciated the fact that this morning we rehearsed Psalm chapter 1, because it seems like even James here is drawing from that great passage, Psalm 1, that that those who do not walk in the way of the wicked or stand in in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, that they will be blessed because their delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his word, they meditate day and night. And when they do that, they are like a tree that is firmly planted by rivers of water and will not be 
moved. Its, its leaf doesn't wither. It, it can survive the drought and the difficult times of life. But why is it that the word of God is so central to everything that we do? Hebrews 4.12 is another really well-known passage. I'll just read it for you. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The reason that our time together on Sunday mornings centers around this book is because this book is no ordinary book. And again, I I know that you know this, but sometimes it's helpful to remember these things so that even when we leave Cornerstone and we go down to what we call affectionately big church, and we listen to Pastor John preaching from the word, why is it that so much time is devoted to that exercise? Well, it's because this is no ordinary book. As Hebrews 4.12 has just told us, the word of God is living and active, and that's because the word of God is empowered by the spirit of God. Ephesians 6 verse 18 calls the word of God, verse 17 calls the word of God, the sword of the spirit. And he takes his word and he uses it to pierce into our hearts and our consciences I mean, isn't it amazing after you hear a a message that has particularly provoked your heart, you get in the car and you say, man, that was really convicting. Why is that? That's because the Spirit of God takes his word and he uses it to pierce our hearts and to transform our lives so that we would be doers of the word and not just hearers. I even think of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he says that we are to desire the milk of the word so that we might grow in respect to salvation. So this morning, I want to just focus our thoughts around the magnificent, wondrous nature of the word of God, because... Again, my hope is that we'll be encouraged even as we come week after week listening to sermon after sermon. Why is it that we do this? It's because we want our hearts and our minds and our lives to be exposed to the truth of this book. Now, we're actually going to look at another familiar passage this morning. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 well-known passage of Scripture where Scripture talks about itself. And in talking about itself, it reminds us as to why this book is so extraordinary. We're going to organize our thoughts around three features of the Word of God that make it unlike any other book. We're going to talk about the authority of this book. And then we're going to talk about the authenticity of this book and finally the applicability of this book. Or if you don't want an alliterated outline, we can just go with the inspiration, canonicity, and sufficiency of Scripture. 
2 Timothy chapter 3. And before we look at verses 16 and 17, let's look at verse 12. I want to give you a little bit of the context here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 14, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate or complete, equipped for every good work. Paul will go on in chapter 4, and of course the chapter breaks are not in the original, those were added later, but he'll go on in chapter 4 to charge Timothy based on what he's just said about the truth of God's word to be faithful to preach that word in season and out of season and to, even in verse 5 of chapter 4, take that word to a lost and dying world and to fulfill the work of an evangelist. But I think it's interesting here in verses 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, a couple things about the context. First of all, you'll notice that the context here is a context of persecution. In verse 12, those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. And in fact, in verses 1 to 11 of this chapter, we find that the overall context is a context about false teaching, about how society is going to get worse and worse and about how those who desire to honor Christ in the, midst, in the midst of that kind of hostile culture will be persecuted. <clears throat> the other thing that's interesting about this context is that these, in some ways, represent Paul's last words. This is the last epistle that he would ever write. He's in a dungeon in Rome awaiting execution, He's about to say in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 4 that he's like a drink offering about to be poured out. He's run the race. He's completed the course. He's looking forward to the crown of righteousness that awaits those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. And this is sort of his final charge to Timothy. And I find it fascinating that in the midst of that charge, Paul would cling to the truth of this book. So he's in a, a culture that's getting worse, a culture that hates Christ. He's near the end of his life, and his final charge to his son in the faith is, hey, don't forget to build your life around the truth of this book. It's like what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, in what has become a famous children's song, right? The wise man built his house upon the rock, in that context, in Matthew chapter 7, the rock is the words of Christ. Jesus says, so is the man who builds his life on my words. And here Paul tells Timothy, even at the end of his life, 
build your life around the Word of God. I also think it's important to recognize that when Paul says this in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3, this is not some sort of ivory tower logical survey of bibliology. When we talk about the doctrine of inspiration, the doctrine of canonicity, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, it can start to sound very quickly like a theological textbook. But that's not Paul's context here. Paul is suffering He's about to die, and he's giving Timothy his final marching orders, and he says, build your life around the Word of God. Well, with that as the the context, I want to talk about, again, three features of this book that make it so extraordinary, which is why we not only build our worship service around hearing from this book, we build our lives around the truth of this book. The first of these three features I've called the authority of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. And what I want to feature under this point is the doctrine of inspiration, the doctrine of inspiration. And it's right there in that first line of chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is inspired of God or inspired by God. Uh, The word inspired comes from some Greek words that actually mean breathed out. Scripture is breathed out by God. And in a very real sense, the reason that this book is so central to what we do on Sundays and should be central to what we do the other six days of the week is because these are the very words of God himself. I find it amazing even to think about, I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this message, that the entire universe is the result of God speaking, right? Genesis 1, God spoke. I remember reading one time about, it was a Christian who was talking about the Big Bang, and he said, I I sort of believe in a Big Bang. God spoke, and bang, it was created. (laughs) Maybe a little different than how it's presented in the public schools, but... It is true that God spoke and this universe came into existence. And isn't it amazing that the God who spoke creation into existence is the same God who spoke the truth of this book, such that when we submit ourselves to the teaching of his word, we are submitting ourselves to what he himself has said. And the reality is, It's not that a book is the centerpiece of our worship service. It's that God is the centerpiece of our worship service. Christ is the centerpiece of our worship service. And when we submit ourselves, when we hear him speak and we follow him, we exalt him and glorify him in that process. Right in John chapter 10, the whole section of scripture where Jesus presents himself as the good shepherd, he says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And so the reason that we build our lives on this book is because this book is the very word of God. If we were to talk about the doctrine of inspiration, there's a few places in scripture we could go. You don't need to turn there, but 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 talk about the fact that holy men were moved by the Holy Spirit to produce 
to pen the words of Scripture. Or we could look at uh, 1 Peter 1.10, where Peter talks about how the prophets of old were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 4, verse 25, Peter says that the Holy Spirit inspired the prophets. He's talking about David in that context. I love what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, that long ago God spoke through the prophets, but in our day he has spoken through his son Jesus Christ. All of that affirms what we see here in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is inspired by God. And so we submit ourselves to this book because in the same way that a citizen subjects himself to the words of the king, we as citizens of heaven subject and submit ourselves to the king of heaven. So why, why do sermons take up so much of our worship service? It's not because we love oratory. It's not because we're into rhetoric. It's because we want to hear from the king, and we want to subject ourselves to what he has revealed. The sermon explains and exhorts from the words of this book so that we would not just be hearers but also doers. Now, I want to talk just a little bit more about the fact that this is the Word of God. Over 2,000 times in the Old Testament, we find expressions of the Lord said or God said. The idea that this is His very Word, that theme continues into the New Testament. More than 40 times in the New Testament, the New Testament affirms that this is the Word of God. I use the word authority for our first point this morning because authority is directly tied to authorship. In fact, the English word authority comes from the English word author. And so what is it that gives the Bible its authority? It is its divine authorship. This word comes with the authority of God himself in the same way that if a king were to pass an edict, that edict comes with the very authority of the king. This word comes with the very authority of God. Because it is his word, it comes with his authority. And not only that, but because it is his word, it reflects his character and it comes with his power. It is also incapable of falsehood because God is incapable of falsehood. And so the doctrine of authority, the doctrine of inerrancy, the transforming power of Scripture, all of these things relate to the fact that this is the inspired Word of God. It is God-breathed. It is His very Word. When we think of the fact that this is the Word of God, there are many what we might call lines of evidence that we could produce to demonstrate or to reflect or affirm the fact that this is no ordinary book. And uh, if you were to pick up a typical apologetics book, you might find a number of these lines of evidence. Things like fulfilled prophecy, right? The Bible is an extraordinary book because it contains fulfilled prophecy which demonstrates that its author is Lord over time. Uh, we could 
focus just on messianic prophecies. And, and even among those, we could focus just on those prophecies that relate to Jesus's first coming, and we would have over 300 fulfilled prophecies. Isaiah 53, that great chapter that foretells the suffering of the coming Messiah, there's 25 at least specific prophecies in that chapter that are fulfilled perfectly in Christ. We could also talk about the Bible's historical accuracy and the fact that archaeology keeps uncovering things that confirm the truth of the Bible. I found a quote from a British author. He said this, he said, God's word has stood against its critics for hundreds of years. They come, they criticize, they disagree among themselves, and they disappear, leaving only a paper trail of their unbelief. Those who believe the Bible to be without error and who believe it is God's clear revelation for modern man, it consistently proves to be a reliable guide to the way of salvation for every aspect of the Christian life. I like that. The the legacy of the critics is just a paper trail of unbelief, and yet wave after wave of skepticism can never undermine the truth. Uh, We could also talk about the Bible's incredible moral influence. No other book has had such an impact on society than the Word of God, showing its transcendent ethical character, which again reflects the character of God. We, We could talk about the Bible's supernatural unity, that you have more than 40 human authors over 1,500 years writing on three different continents in three different languages. Aramaic is the third one, in case you were wondering. And All of it yet shows the unity of thought that can only be explained by a divine author who was working through those human authors who penned these different books. And based on these and other lines of evidence from fulfilled prophecy to its moral superiority to its incredible supernatural unity, we could make a strong case based on the evidence that this is no ordinary book. And yet, and yet, as important, or excuse me, as important as those evidences might be, it's vital for us to realize that these kinds of things will never be able to convince an unbeliever to come to saving faith. And that's because saving faith is a matter of the Holy Spirit opening blind eyes and giving life to dead hearts and regenerating a person. It's as the Holy Spirit uses his word to do that, that regeneration and belief occurs. And so if we were to answer the question, how do we know that this book is the word of God? Our answer must ultimately point to the fact that the Holy Spirit has opened our hearts to the truth of his word and renewed our minds through the power of the scriptures so that we have become new creatures in Christ. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that those who have been regenerated through the Holy Spirit are now new creatures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, speaking of unbelievers, Paul says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually determined. But believers, through the Holy Spirit, verse 12 of that chapter says, we have been given 
the mind of Christ. And so through the Holy Spirit, we have, we have received through Him the confirming proof of the supernatural power of this book. And so while we might amass a great uh, number of lines of external evidence, it is the Holy Spirit, the internal witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that confirms for us as believers that this is indeed the Word of God. Our own pastor has said it this way. He says, There is only one argument that can prove to us that the Bible is true and authoritative for our lives. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds. How do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? Because this book, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has transformed us, and the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to the truth of His Word. We have experienced the transforming power of God's word firsthand. I love what Peter said in John chapter 6, verses 68 and 69. You'll remember in that passage, uh, Jesus preaches about being the bread of life, and uh, a a large number of the folks in the multitude misunderstand his intent, and they leave. And Jesus looks at the 12 and he says, are you guys going to leave also? And Peter says in response, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And that's the testimony of all of us. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of of eternal life. And for those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit confirms that this is indeed the Word of God. Came across an illustration of a pastor in the early 20th century named Harry Ironside. He was uh, preaching the gospel in San Francisco when he was confronted by an atheist. And the atheist shouted out, Atheism has done more good for the world than Christianity. And then the atheist challenged Harry Ironside to a debate. And uh, Dr. Ironside responded by saying, look, I'll be happy to debate you. Uh, We can meet here tomorrow, same time. Be happy to do the debate. He said, "I, I just have one thing that I want us to do. He said, I am going to bring with me 100 men and women who have been saved out of the gutter and out of the darkness and despair of life, who have been lifted up into the brightness of God. I'm going to bring 100 of them, and they will be here standing beside me tomorrow when we debate. And you, you bring 100 men and women who have been saved out of the gutter and darkness of life by the gospel of atheism. Well, the debate never happened because atheism never saved anyone out of the gutter and darkness of despair and hopelessness. Only a transforming gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit can do that. 
And praise the Lord, God used his word to do that in our hearts and lives. In fact, that's James chapter one. You were brought forth, verse 18. You were brought forth by the word of truth. If we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, I think it's interesting in verses 14 and 15 that Timothy himself had experienced this very thing. It was the truth of the word of God that had transformed Timothy's life. And it is that transforming truth of God's word that confirms that this is indeed the inspired word of God. Because it is inspired by God, all scripture has his perfect character. It comes with his absolute authority. It is true and right and perfect. It is empowered by his spirit. And that power transforms sinners into new creatures in Christ. So yes, the external evidence is there, but the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit is what confirms for us as believers that this is indeed God's word. Let's talk secondly about the authenticity of Scripture, the authenticity of Scripture. So the authority of Scripture, let's talk secondly about the authenticity of Scripture. And under this point, what I want to focus on is the doctrine of canonicity, the doctrine of canonicity. Obviously, the word authenticity could be used to apply to a number of different features of the Word of God, but I want to focus specifically on canonicity. And the doctrine of the canon relates to those individual books that comprise the totality of Scripture. 66 books, 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament, 66 books. This is the canon. The word canon comes from a Greek word that means the rule or the standard, and it refers to those, well, really what it refers to is the fact that the Word of God is our standard and our rule. But when we talk about the doctrine of canonicity, we're talking about which books make up or comprise the Scriptures. And so under this point, really what I want to ask is, I want to ask, how do we know that these 66 books are the right 66 books? Kind of a big question. It's an important question. Now, before we answer that question, you might first ask, well, where's the doctrine of canonicity in these verses? I see inspiration because it says all scripture is inspired by God. Where's the doctrine of canonicity in that verse? I would argue that it's in the first two words, all Scripture. Now, when Paul wrote this, he probably had the Old Testament primarily in mind. And yet, even in his own writings, Paul is clear that he understood that the things that he wrote came with God's authority. We see that in places like 1 Thessalonians, where he affirms, he applauds the fact that the Thessalonians received what he said, not just as the word of men, but for what it really is, the very word of God. And even at the end of 2 Peter, Peter affirms that Paul's writings comprise the scriptures. So the principle extends to the New Testament as well, whether we're looking specifically at Paul's writings or at all of the New Testament writings. All scripture, all scripture is inspired, but Okay, how do we know that this is all Scripture? 
You have groups like Roman Catholics, for example, who would contend that there are a whole set of books that belong between Malachi and Matthew. We call them the apocryphal books. They would refer to them as the deuterocanonical books. So why these 66 books? Now, some of you are looking at the clock and you're saying, how is he going to address this massive question in less than 15 minutes? That's a good question. It's a fair question. I hope you guys are ready to man the doors for when the sojourners arrive. No. Um, Actually, I want to give you a really simple answer. We could, spend, we could spend weeks studying the doctrine of canonicity. We could go book by book. We could look at what's called the external evidence and the internal evidence and the authorship and all of the issues related to every specific component of that. In fact, we spend semesters in seminary studying this topic. But I want to give you a really simple answer that I hope will be helpful to you. How do we know that these 66 books are the right 66 books? The answer to that comes down to the authority for determining canonicity. In the Roman Catholic system, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that it's the church that determines the canon, specifically the Catholic Church. I'm going to argue that that's not the case. I'm going to argue that Christ determines the canon. Christ is the authority over the church, and Christ is also the authority over Scripture. So if someone were to ask me, why these 66 books? This would be my answer in 30 seconds or less. I'm trying to use up some of the 30 seconds for dramatic effect. Okay, the answer is this. We know that the 39 books of the Old Testament are part of the Word of God because Jesus Christ affirmed the canon of his day, and the Jewish canon of his day corresponds to those 39 books. And we know that the New Testament books are part of the canon because Jesus Christ authorized his apostles to give new revelation to the church. And when they did that, that revelation came with his very authority. Jesus Christ affirmed the Old Testament and he authorized the New Testament. So let's talk through that just a little bit. Now I'm going past the 30 seconds, but that was my 30-second answer. Uh, When it comes to the Old Testament, Jesus Christ affirmed the 39 books of the Old Testament. Uh, The Jewish canon of Jesus' day actually organized that into a 22-book canon, sometimes a 24-book canon, and that's because they didn't use a codex. A codex is like a book. They use scrolls. And so you fit more stuff on a scroll when you're using a scroll system. And so they would combine books onto the same scrolls. It was usually 22 or 24 scrolls. And they would uh, coordinate that actually with the Hebrew alphabet and uh, use it as an acronym. But that 22 or 24 book canon corresponds to the 39 books that are in our Old Testament. So if you take all the firsts and seconds and put them together, uh, you come up with Uh, right around 22 or 24 books. 
Again, it was just two different ways of dividing the same content into different formats. And Jesus affirmed that in his ministry. In fact, um, places like Matthew 5, he uh, affirmed the Old Testament in its entirety, Matthew 5, 17, and 18, its historical reliability in places like Matthew 10, its prophetic accuracy, Matthew 26, its efficiency, Luke 16, its unity, Luke 24, its inerrancy, Matthew 22, its infallibility, John 10, its authority, Matthew 21. Jesus repeatedly affirmed the law, the writings, and the prophets, and all that was written in them, uh, Matthew 15, 16, Mark 7, 13, Luke 3, 2, 5, 1, and so on. I know it's not helpful for me to just read references, but I want you to know that these are places where Jesus affirmed the entirety of the Old Testament. The uh, Jews of the first century generally divided their canon into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings, and Jesus affirmed all three parts. And what's significant is that the first century Jews of Judea did not regard those intertestamental books, the apocryphal books like 1 Maccabees or um, the book of Tobit or these kinds of things, they did not view those books as part of their canon. And so when Jesus affirmed their canon as being the true canon, he implicitly excluded the apocryphal books from that. It's also interesting to note that the New Testament never quotes from any of the apocryphal books. Now, some of you might be saying, well, what about Jude quoting from the book of Enoch? Okay, none of you were thinking that, but in case later you think that, oh, one of you, uh, congratulations. Um, <clears throat> so actually, the book of Enoch is not part of the apocrypha. It's one of what is called the pseudepigraphal books. It's not part of the Roman Catholic apocrypha. So the point I was making still stands. But also, in the same way that Paul can quote from pagan poets in Acts 17, Jude is simply using a well-known passage from a literary, uh, a piece of literature that was, was well-known. He's simply using that to make a point about the, uh, the coming of Christ through the lips of Enoch. All right, what about the New Testament? And again, for the sake of time, I'm going to move on to the New Testament. Uh, in John 14, verses 25 and 26, Jesus tells his disciples this in the upper room on the night before his death. He says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus promises his apostles that they're going to be able to remember through the Holy Spirit everything that he's told them. And then, just two chapters later in John 16, verses 12 to 15, Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. And uh, so he goes on, Jesus, to say that even the things that the Father has will be disclosed to the disciples through the Holy Spirit. So John 14, 
everything I said, you'll remember through the Holy Spirit. John 16, I have more to tell you, but it's going to come to you through the Holy Spirit, including things that are to come. These two promises of Jesus, where are these promises fulfilled in the writings of the apostles? Well, the four gospels are an account of what Jesus said. And then the rest of the New Testament is the additional revelation that Jesus wants to give to the church through his apostles, including the book of Revelation, which does disclose that which is to come. So when I say that Jesus determines the canon, Jesus affirms the canon of first century Judaism, which is the Old Testament that is in your Protestant Bibles, and he authorizes his apostles to deliver additional revelation through the Holy Spirit to the church, which is the authorization for the New Testament. You say, well, okay, how does that work itself out when we think through the New Testament? Well, Jesus authorizes his apostles, and so apostolic authorship and or apostolic authorization is a key component to the church's recognition, not determination, but recognition of the canon. So Matthew, he's an apostle. Mark, he wrote down the memoirs of Peter. We know that from a very early church father named Papias. So really, Peter is the apostolic authority behind the gospel of Mark. Luke, he was writing under the apostolic authority of Paul. John is an apostle. So we have that in the four gospels. Then we start with Paul's epistles. Um, By the way, your New Testament canon is organized, well, the book of Acts and then Paul's epistles. It's organized with five books of history, then the writings of the apostle Paul from longest to shortest. That's why the order is the way it is. Then the book of Hebrews, because people were a little bit unsure who wrote that. And then the general epistles all the way to the book of Revelation. But the book of Acts written by Luke, of course, under the authorship or under the authority of Paul. Then Paul's epistles written by an apostle. Hebrews was clearly written under Paul's apostolic authority. Whether it was Paul himself or someone closely associated with him, we know the author was closely associated with Paul because in chapter 13, the author mentions Timothy, and Timothy was one of Paul's closest associates. Then you have the general epistles. James was an apostle. Jude wrote under James's apostolic authority, which is why he mentions James at the beginning of his epistle, and Peter and John were both apostles. Did I leave anybody out? I don't think so. Uh, so the New Testament is authoritative because it comes with Christ's own authorization. Well, we could talk more about canonicity, and if you want to talk more about it after, we can. But how do we know that all Scripture is all Scripture? It's because Christ affirmed the old, and he authorized the new. Christ, then, is the determiner of the canon, and when we submit to these 66 books, we are submitting to the Lordship of Christ. And Colossians chapter 3, I think, appropriately refers to the Scriptures as the Word of Christ, because it is indeed His Word. All right, go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, and I just want to finish with 
this final thought, the applicability of the Word of God, the applicability of the Word of God. All Scripture is inspired by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. And here what we're focusing on is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. The doctrine of inspiration, this is God's Word. The doctrine of canonicity, we have the complete Word of God. The doctrine of sufficiency, when we submit ourselves to the Word of God, it renders us complete, giving us everything we need, as Second Peter says, for life and godliness. It renders us complete in terms of what we believe, that's doctrine, and how we live, that's practice. And here Paul gives us a number of categories, and I think it's kind of interesting because when you look at these categories, when we apply the Word of God to teaching, that's just Christian education, and when we apply it to reproof, uh, that's really biblical counseling. It's neuthetic counseling. When we apply it to correction, it can either be polemics or apologetics. When we apply it to training in righteousness, it's discipleship. We come up with all of these different terms, but really all we're doing is taking the truth of God's word and we're making it live either in our own hearts or we're bringing it to bear on the lives of the people around us. The end of the verse there, we do all of this so that the man of God, and man of God is really a technical title there for Timothy, who's training to be a pastor, really functioning as a pastor at this point, but it applies to any Christian, every person, that they may be adequate. The word adequate, there's ironically not an adequate translation, in my opinion. Uh, The word complete is really the better term. It means sufficient. Adequate makes it sound like you're just scraping by. If my kids come home and they, I ask, how'd you do on the test? And they said, well, I did adequately. That doesn't give me a lot of confidence that they did well. But, but this verse is intended to convey confidence that you may be complete, that you may be fully equipped for every good work. And then he's going to go on to charge Timothy for pastoral ministry. Now, I wanted to make one final connection, and I know we're out of time because my 30 seconds turned into a lot longer than 30 seconds. The context here is Timothy being trained up for ministry. He's about to be charged in chapter 4, verse 1, in the presence of God, of Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. I mean, this is like a big Uh, charge to preach the word, verse 2. And oftentimes you hear this passage taught in a context in which future pastors are being charged to be faithful preachers. And that is the application here. But I want to go back to verses 14 and 15, and I want to take the application and focus it away from church back onto our homes because I think that's also a valid application in this text. That the Word of God, inspired, complete, sufficient, 
that was all Timothy needed to go out and be a bold pastor and an evangelist in the midst of a wicked and hostile generation, that same word is the word, verses 14 and 15, in which he was trained as a child that brought him to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so the final thought that I wanted to leave you with this morning is, don't just think about this passage in terms of, this is why we do what we do at church, because we want to hear from God and we want God to change us. That's true. And I don't want you to just leave thinking this is a passage for pastors. Well, it is a passage for pastors and preachers. I also want you to recognize that the same power that the same power that proceeds from the pulpit on Sunday mornings, the same truth that transforms lives when Pastor John is preaching in the pulpit in big church is the same truth that God intends for you to use at home to transform your family. You don't transform your family. He does it. And he does it through his inspired, complete, and all-sufficient word, which was enough for Timothy to be transformed, and it's enough for your family to be transformed. And I just think that's a cool connection in verses 14 and 15 from Timothy's upbringing with his grandma and his mom faithfully teaching him the truth that brought him to saving faith. Now, Timothy, you go and you take that same truth and you preach it with boldness. So why do we, why do we organize everything around this book? Because this book is the word of God. It comes with his authority it is the authentic word of God. These 66 books are the books that Christ himself authorized. And it is applicable to our lives because it is sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We think of John 17, 17, where Jesus said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Father, as we go to hear the truth of your word in the next service, my prayer is that our hearts would be receptive so that we would not just be hearers, but also doers as we submit ourselves to what you have said so that we might become more like Christ, the author and perfecter of the faith. We pray this in his name. Amen.